Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science across the globe. I'm your host, Joe Schunkweiler, a physician and former health tech executive now supporting startups and investors at Amazon Web Services. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Lesh. Dr. Lesh is the CEO and founder of Syntegra, a company creating accurate and privacy-preserved synthetic data that bridges the gap between data privacy and data science needs. Dr. Lesh is not only a serial entrepreneur and inventor, but also an adjunct professor of medicine at the University of California at San Francisco. He provides his insights into navigating a career in academic medicine as a repeat founder, identifying when an idea or project grows into a potential business, and understanding the differences between developing and commercializing medical devices and software startups. Enjoy. Dr. Michael Lesh, CEO and founder of Syntegra. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Joe. It's an honor to be here. Uh, I've, congratulations on the podcast. I've listened to uh, the episode so far and um, they're awesome. And uh, congratulations. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. That's kind of you to say. Uh, I'd love to, to kick things off. Uh, first off, what is Syntegra? What do you all do? But more importantly, uh, how did you get involved in this? Because I know from our previous discussions, you've had a, a really fascinating career through this world. So what can you tell us about the company and, and how you how you ended up founding it? Yeah, you know, so I, I think how it started um, goes a little bit to my background. Um, I'm a cardiac electrophysiologist, uh, actually have a computer science background from MIT and um, always have wanted to uh, apply kind of uh, technological solutions to healthcare problems. Um, I was chief of EP at UCSF when we realized that atrial fibrillation is this arrhythmia that can't be treated with medications. So we developed a method called ablation. And at that point, I said, you know, this is really cool. Um, maybe this could be a company. And that was the mm -hmm. origin of the first company was uh, Atrionics. And then I, I'd gone on to start a number of other companies, mostly in the medical device uh, arena. And then about five, six years ago, um, the last company was, uh, was successfully acquired and I wanted to give back to UCSF, um, place I had gone to med school and residency, et cetera. Uh, and um, came back as what was called the executive director of health technology innovation uh, under the, the chancellor's office. And the idea was just like, do big things with technology, try to do a better job translating the innovations to patient benefit. Um, and one of the areas that was of particular interest was data. Uh, and what folks there told me and what I found was that there's all this healthcare data that if scientists and researchers could get access, there's a number of insights they could make into you know, causes of disease, potential treatments to basically accelerate um, uh, innovation in healthcare. Mm. The problem was because of patient privacy, obviously a, a huge issue, it was really difficult to share that data, both within an organization and between a healthcare system and any third party outside. Um, and so that was a, uh, something that uh, I took my background as an entrepreneur and my uh, background as a uh, uh, faculty physician there um, and tried to develop a solution. And what we came up with is something called synthetic data. So Syntegra basically has a mission of democratizing healthcare data. We provide 
low burden access to very high quality healthcare data mm-hmm. while maintaining absolute patient privacy and doing it at a scale which is necessary to drive things like precision medicine, machine learning, AI. And, uh, and, and so that's kind of how it got started. First, it was just a project. And next thing you know, investors were coming by and we realized that this is something that could uh, improve healthcare throughout the ecosystem, whether it be you know, drug companies and insurance companies, et cetera. Everybody has data that sits in these silos and needs to be shared. And so we realized this is a solution that could be broadly applied. We wound up starting a company and that's about uh, almost three years ago now. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. Is it, did you, did it feel, um, given that you had such experience in identifying problems, turning them into actual companies, successfully exiting and or growing and then successfully exiting those companies, um, how soon did you have a sense that like, this is, this is on that pathway? This is an idea that's fit for that well, in the same way your ablation, you know, knowledge was. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Um, when I went back to UCSF uh, to try to, you know, help in these commercialization efforts, it was never my intention to start another company, and absolutely never my intention to run <laughs> another company. Um, it's a it's a heavy lift, and I thought, you know, I would just kind of help out, and and even this idea for how to do data sharing initially, it was just something like, well, how would this work? What would this look like? And the more we looked at it, and then I met up with. Uh, with Ofer uh, Mandelovich, my co-founder, um, we realized that there really is something here. And uh, I tend to have this thing, like the hair literally goes mm-hmm. up on the back of my neck and I become obsessed. And I, you know, I, I do research. I, I read everything I can about the area. And when I'm still grabbed by it, that's how I know that there may be something here. I mean, I'll tell you something else. You know, we use synthetic data. And synthetic data is used in other industries, in, in finance, um, uh, autonomous vehicles, they make mm. synthetic miles. Um, and I kind of knew about that stuff, but I thought maybe we could apply that to healthcare data. And the key thing was I asked all the top medical informatics people at UCSF and outside, have you ever heard of synthetic data? And when none of them had heard of synthetic data, I said, huh, maybe there's an answer here. Hmm. And you know, and we proceeded from there. So uh, as I say, eventually it just became inevitable that this should be a company because the way uh, these methods are gonna benefit the broad swath of patients is to do it commercially. Um, and I guess I was the last man standing. So I wound <laughs> up uh, starting the company and, and running it. And I just love it. It's been a thrill of my life to be able to do this. That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, having having had some experience spinning out a company from an academic medical center in my previous life, um, I'm always fascinated by what that transition is from something that uh, can exist as an internal research enterprise or you know, purely grant funded internally with some external looking um, incursions from other folks. But there, there really hits a point where and it's not just to scale for a commercial benefit, but to scale the idea and the technology and the impact, you really have no choice. Um, you know, if it's not something that's completely amenable to open sourcing, which often it isn't, particularly something where there's so much, uh, there's such a privacy overlay uh, on the, the data front, like it's, you need to do it as a commercial enterprise. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised you got there, but I am like, 
given your know-how, I'm always curious about what, like when that switch flips and you say, no, this is not a project. This is, this is a company. Yeah. I mean, again, it was a, it was a combination of the technology seemed to be really, really good and the unmet needs seeing really there. I mean, you know, it's a lot of work, as you know, to start a company. And one of the things you need to do is when you say there's an unmet need, you need to make sure there's both a need and that it's unmet. <laughs> and that requires a lot of conversation. I mean, you need to talk to 50 or 100 potential mm -hmm. customers, stakeholders. Um, and we did that. Uh, it's just part of this whole process. Like, is there a business there? Well, is there a customer? You know, do they need data and if they do so do that do they already have access to the data they need so is it is there a need is it unmet um and again as i say we developed this synthetic data technology using modern machine learning techniques known as uh, language models and that really put this thing over the top because the the way we can develop patient level data um that maintains the privacy is is phenomenally good. There's been nothing like that. And as you say, you know, it's not, you know, academic health systems are not there to produce a, a product. They're there to take care of patients and, uh, and do research. And it's up to, you know, innovators uh, uh, at these health systems to say, hey, I think I can benefit more patients um, by turning this into a product, turning this into a company. Um, and so that's what we wound up doing. And it kind of became inevitable at some point. Going back to those, those conversations as you were doing your own diligence um, and have continued to do, I'm sure, as the company's evolved and the product has evolved, um, how, how have you determined what the right segment is within healthcare to tackle? Uh, and I ask this because, as you alluded to, there's this touches so many different areas, payers, providers, life science, whatever it is, you know, pharmaceuticals, devices, the whole range. Um, so who are you, who are you selling to now? And how did you decide that that was the right place to start? Yeah, no, it's a super good question. And um, I have to say it's an iterative process. I think one of the mistakes, any type of entrepreneur, but a, specifically a physician entrepreneur, they get a fixed idea in their head and this is the way they can do, they need to do it because this is what mm -hmm. they thought of. And they forget that there has to be an iterative process. So you create something, you test it with your potential customers and they give you feedback and then you tweak the product. Um, you know, so what we have found now is that there is privacy uh, protected data throughout the healthcare system. And we've not decided to take a specific segment, whether it be you know, just uh, academic health centers or just cancer data. Um, really, it's, it's more of a broad platform base. Mm -hmm. So right now we have customers who are payers, uh, insurance companies. We have customers who are healthcare systems. And one of the areas that we have found is of particular interest is this growing area of digital health companies. Hmm. Um, as we create synthetic data for these various customers like health systems, uh, insurance providers, et cetera, we're developing this huge data set of synthetic data, which we can then monetize 
by allowing access of digital health companies. Hmm. So, you know, when I was at UCSF, I mean, you get all kinds of great ideas. Someone's got a great algorithm for sepsis, or they got a great algorithm to shorten length of stay. And if they could just get access to the data, they're sure that this right. algorithm would work. And, and that's that's the problem is like you can't get access to the data because, you know, it's privacy preserved and no one's going to give you access and you can't move the data. So what we have found is that um, this synthetic data can fuel innovation by allowing developers access, quick access, you know, within days um, to this data to then develop their algorithms. Uh, their machine learning models, which once built, can then be ported to a health system to work on the real data. So you shortcut that entire period where they're trying to get access to the real data and can't, but have the capability to develop models if only they could get access. Uh, so that's kind of a growing part of the business is, um, you know, there's 15,000 digital health companies now. Uh, and all of them need data to do something. And so that turns out to be a large segment. What has that reception been like um, as you productize this, so to speak? Um, and you know, where have you seen the most friction? And I guess yeah. a follow-up to, to that would be, um, given that you know, we're talking on the, an AWS podcast, like is has AWS and the cloud in general been, been a part of that story um, in, sure. in reducing that friction? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I would say that the friction is that synthetic data is new and to some extent un unproven, though maybe even worse is that there has been synthetic data in the past. It wasn't very good, mm -hmm. but to some extent, synthetic data at least had um, not the best reputation. I think that's changing now. Um, but look, you know, it's a new approach and there's two stakeholders. There are the data scientists who want to make sure the data meets their, their need for analysis. And then there are the compliance people who want to make sure that, mm. that privacy is guaranteed. So, you know, we do a lot of things. We train our model on premises. Oftentimes these health systems or payers have an AWS instance, which we can use, you know, in behind their uh, firewall. So, you know, we need to convince both the compliance people that it's safe and the data scientists that it's effective, if you will. And we've spent a lot of time and effort uh, doing our own analysis, developing a white paper that looks at both of those. We've uh, partnered with a company called Mirador, which mm. specializes in data privacy and they certify not just our data, but actually our method. Um, you know, but I think ultimately the more use synthetic data finds, the more comfort other potential customers will have. Uh, and now the other thing that we found, and this is where AWS um, has been particularly helpful, you know, let's say we go into a health system or an insurance provider, and they said, we want to have synthetic data created on our data because we need our own people to have access to that data. Great, we do that. And we say like, well, where do you want the data? And they say, well, we don't have any place to put the data because our credentialing system, our compliance system isn't structured to have access to synthetic data. Right. Um, and so what we've now done is with AWS's help, quickly stood up a hosted platform. And what this allows is the data scientists from the health system uh, or other third parties, drug companies to get immediate access to synthetic, synthetic data, but not only that, to get access to tools. So we've put SageMaker, uh, we've put Athena, 
um, you know, open access to open source software. And this is something that data scientists within an organization can't even get access to open source software, right. you know, much less things like SageMaker, Jupyter Notebooks. Um, so this is turning out to be a real, uh, a real, you know, plus in our um, armamentarium uh, is this ability to offer customers access to a full platform and all the tools they want, both physicians, uh, data scientists, you know, hospital administrators can quickly get the tools they need to do the work uh, that they're trying to do. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I, I, um, I'm actually curious how, how similar has that been to your previous uh, innovation efforts? Do you feel like it's a pretty standard cycle of something new, something slightly different, but clearly solving a need that you've, you know, elucidated and, 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 and mulled over for a long time as part of the founding process? Um, but when you encounter that friction, like, is there some muscle memory that you have of, of doing this before as a, a repeat founder? Well, <laughs> um, it's, it, there are similarities and a lot of differences between this and the medical device work I've done in the past. Um, the similarity, I think, that is, you know, as a physician, as a scientist, you, you identify that unmet need. And it's harder to identify the unmet need, I think, than it is to actually solve mm. the problem. Um, and especially as physicians, you know, we have this really this gift, this opportunity that we shouldn't waste to like try to improve care at the bedside, if you will. Right. Um, so the ability to identify an unmet need, um, you know, health uh, uh, medical devices are regulated by the FDA, right? So the timeline is much longer. And the idea of get a minimal viable product MVP out there and then iterate doesn't exist with medical device. Right. You know, right. there's something called a design freeze and that's what you do. And it's gonna be that way for the next five years until you get through the FDA process. And then maybe you have a, you know, a gen two. Um, whereas with med tech, you know, digital health, um, you can rapidly iterate. So you can immediately take input from your customers and improve the product. And I, I can tell you in medical devices, I sure wish we had that. I mean, we would right. have a catheter that had a certain shape and uh, the users would say, well, can't you make it this other shape? And we say, no, we can't because the design is frozen. Whereas in, in tech, um, you're much more able to, um, to improve your product as you go. On the other hand, there's a big expectation uh, on the part of your investors in particular um, to produce quick results, right? Uh, you know, we're, we sort of fall a little bit into the, the SaaS software as a service. And, you know, you kind of expect it to have a million dollars in revenue <laughs> in the first year or six months, and it's got to look like exponential growth, right? Um, you know, whereas in devices, the first year, you're lucky to have put a team together. Um, so it's quite different. Um, the, I think the other piece uh, that I've learned is just you know, grit, if you will. Right. Um, you know, when you see patients as a physician, they're going to tell you the truth most of the time. And, you know, you're going to be able to solve their problem. Uh, and when you take a test, you're going to get a 90 and all that sort of thing. I think in, in uh, start, the startup world, whether it's tech or devices, a lot of people will say no. Many people, 95% mm -hmm. of the time, what you're building won't work. The investors don't want to invest. The customer says no. You can't hire the people you want. 
And you really need to be able to work through that, you know, what they call grit um, to be able to be successful. Uh, and it's very different. It's a very different mindset, a very different culture than it is, you know, in say academic medicine. Do you find that the, the grit required for something like a device, you know, a, a hardware element, like we talked a lot of, about, like, I'm always amazed by people who actually make a thing somewhere and then distribute it, right? Like we, because everybody's got a very software first mindset for a lot of very good reasons. Um, but does that grit give you a longer horizon, like a more patient mindset? Um, I'm, I'm trying to get at, like you talked eloquently about the, the device to software transition, but do you feel like you're a better leader on the software side, having had to navigate that process for devices or they're so different that they sort of exist in parallel? So there was another element besides grit that I didn't mention should actually go at the top of the list, which is people. Hmm. So the ability to put together a team um, is absolutely paramount. I mean, I don't know a lot about nitinol, and yet I got together with the top nitinol engineer in the world um, to build our uh, appendage occlusion device, for example. So hmm. I think it's really important to have, to be able to articulate your vision of what you want this thing to do, and then have co-founders who have expertise in that area. You know, regulatory, this is on the device side, you know, you've got to find people who are really good at regulatory. You've got mm -hmm. to find really good patent attorneys. So the ability to put a team together to widely network and find really great people, I think that translates whether it's uh, devices, you know, or, uh, or tech. Um, you know, the other thing is, everything is sort of contingent you know you what i've found is somebody will ask you quickly oh hey what if i do things this way what if i use this type of fatigue testing and go yeah yeah that that's that's fine or someone says you know what if i uh uh create the file format like this and you go oh, okay that's fine and those decisions that you make kind of in the moment but you kind of give it enough thought it's kind of a micro decision can have major macro uh uh implications like gee, you pick that type of fatigue testing and it turns out the FDA wants a billion cycles, not mm. 500 million. And so now you have to redo the whole thing. So there's a lot of decisions. And I think in both devices and technology, there's essentially just as many decision points that come right. in. They're spread apart farther in devices. Um, but each one of those decision points requires you to analyze the effect of various uh, outcomes. And it's always in the face of a lot of unknown. I mean, you know, it's like, if it was easy, everyone could do it. If these, if the answers were obvious and easy, then you wouldn't have a high risk, high reward startup company. Um, so I think, you know, those are, are some of the things, uh, uh, people, um, ability to make decisions in the face of unknowns, developing a really good narrative so you can sell this idea to the people you need to get. Um, in addition to grit. Yeah, it's, and I, um, I don't know whether you agree with this or not, but I feel like going from particularly subspecialty clinical medicine, where you basically spend your whole life intentionally doing the same kinds of things to try to uh, know, that when, know when you're approaching a variation point and then the decision piece kicks in. Um, yeah. But up to that point, you want volume. 
right? You just need to see as much as you can for it to be as gross as you can, right? Like um, in surgery, we used to say, don't, you know, in particularly in general surgery, like don't go to the person that it's the one Whipple, the large pancreas operation, the granddaddy right. of all surgeries. You don't want to be that one Whipple they do that year. You want right. it to be the third one that week. Um, 100%. And it's funny. It, it, I'll just interrupt you. Why not? I, I mean, it's funny that you say that because, you know, quite frankly, as a repeat entrepreneur, you know, I have quote unquote experience. So I'm, mm. it's easier for me to find funding and people. But, you know, like you say, in surgery or cardiac electrophysiology intervention, experience means a thousand of them. <laughs> right. And, you know, if you've done startup companies, maybe you've done three or four. I mean, that's not even close to beginning mm-hmm. to gain experience, right? So, um, you know, that's why I say, you know, for physicians who want to dive in and become an entrepreneur, but they don't have any quote unquote experience, no one has a lot of experience, certainly right. not compared to interventionalist surgeons. Um, you know, they don't even t- let you touch a patient on your own until you've done a hundred cases, right? So, um, yeah, so that's the benefit of experience is different and the importance essentially the number of decisions you have to make, you know, if you're doing surgery, like deciding, you know, what kind of suture to put in is like super important. Whereas, you know, deciding how big your file should be or what format should be is important, but patients' lives are not at risk uh, with those decisions. Do you get a lot of uh, physicians that are looking to make that transition. I mean, I, you know, I'm nowhere near your level of, uh, of success in the space. And I, I talk to a lot of docs that want to, that want to do startups, particularly now, because it's, you know, it, it's the barrier to entry from on the software side, at least is, is lower than it's ever been. Um, do you, do you get a lot of, and you have done that, like sort of facilitating that at UCSF, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah. I mean, I mentor, I do a lot of mentoring. I think it's really important to give back. Um, so I see one or two physicians, you know, a week on mm-hmm. average. Um, I teach uh, the UCSF course called Startup 101. Um, I, I teach and mentor in the Catalyst program there. So I see a lot of physicians who want to be entrepreneurs. And what I will say is that a extremely small minority of them will be successful. Um, I see a lot of people who want to want to be an entrepreneur, hmm. but they are not willing to do what it takes to really be successful. And, um, you know, for just as an example, if you want to start a company, uh, you know, and you're, you know, an academic physician or whatever, you're going to need to go to your chief and say, I need a sabbatical. I need hmm. six months. It's not something you do in your spare time. It is more work than you can possibly ever imagine unless you've you've done it. And so you really need to be ready to put in a hundred percent because anything less, it just, it simply won't be successful. Your chances of a success are very low to begin with. And unless you're really willing to to dump all you have and all of your passion into this, it's probably not going to be successful. Now, on the other hand, what I tell people is that I'm here to discourage you from doing this. And if you don't listen to me, you're more likely to be successful. That's right. So, um, you know, it's, that's, that's what I mean by grit is the ability to go past a lot of people telling you it's a stupid idea to then being successful. Is there, is there a certain archetype that you've seen among, you know, physicians, scientists that, um, that is a indicator for success, given that you've seen this from such a privileged view? Yeah. You know, I mean, 
it's interesting. I don't think there's one personality type. There are introverts or extroverts, but I think there's you know a bias towards action, right? And this is a, a business term, which just means like you're not going to sit there and analyze all day. Like you want to go do something. You want to get it done. Um, there has to be a humility yet a confidence. In other words, um, I don't know everything there is to know. I really want to learn. I want to get a broad network of people um, and just be willing to ask dumb questions and look dumb and become confident over time. Um, you have to be very good at the narrative because you are going to be selling this idea from today until forever. You probably need a co-founder. That's where the network comes in. But if you don't have the ability to tell the big story, you're not going to be able to even get co-founders, much less funding. Um, so it's a broad range, but it's the unusual uh, uh, physician, I would say, who can actually do it. I mean, some of it's because our training um, mm -hmm. is very different, right? You know, you're a surgeon. Um, you do you make changes extraordinarily slowly. You know, you're highly suspicious of any little change in the way you hold the scalpel. You know, which clamp you use. Like, you're not going to change your clamp um, until you've like really looked at it, and there's been studies, etc. So. The idea of a bias towards action, the ability to, to change and, and make decisions in the face of unknown is actually against our, uh, our training. The other thing that's against our training is delegation. You can't trust anybody to do your work. It's up to you and mm -hmm. the patient, um, which is great. It's really good for patient care, but that doesn't work when you're trying to build a, a, a rapidly moving startup company. You have to be willing to delegate. Um, so there's a lot of reasons that physicians are not fundamentally trained to do this, but they can do it if they, you know, have bias towards action, humility, grit, and the ability to tell a really strong narrative. Yeah, I I, I could not agree more. Uh, and you you encapsulated a lot of the, the, the thoughts that I've had in conveying what it's like to make that transition over and what you see, particularly in an academic medical center, of the the work that goes into taking care of complex patients at a place like UCSF um, is um, some of it's translatable and transferable. You just got to know how to tap into it the right way. Like you can't be, you can't, there's no room for, you have to have both a huge ego and no ego, you know, to do it. That's a really good way to put it. I mean, I'll give you, here's a small index of likelihood of success that I've seen, you know, especially in, in academic medical centers. If you email someone on a Saturday and you get back their vacation message, like I'm not, it's the weekend, I'm not available, that person will never be successful. I mean, I've never met an entrepreneur or even a venture capitalist or, you know, somebody at a big company who doesn't answer their email, you know, quickly. So the idea that you would somehow not be available, it, it just, it, you know, so what that means is that, you know, uh, work life balance, I mean, you do that over a period of years or decades, not like in real time today. You're gonna to be working, working, working. And yes, you need to exercise and take care of yourself, but there's gonna be a lot of work and you balance that out with lifestyle, you know, with, when the company has been acquired or gone public. Dr. Michael Lesh, CEO and founder of Syntegra. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, Joe, it's been a real honor and real pleasure. And uh, again, uh, I look forward to hearing some more of the podcasts. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and rating. It helps others find us. 
To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please go to aws.amazon.com slash startups.